Tonight, as we move forward in this study, we're going to see Paul being brought before the Sanhedrin right on the heels of all of the events uh, that have taken place after his arrest in the temple. The commander who saved Paul's life, basically, his life wouldn't have been worth a plug nickel uh, if he had been left to the mob there because they were about to tear him limb from limb. He kept him, even though uh, Paul had proclaimed to him that he was a Roman citizen and, and that uh, it was illegal for him to be chained and illegal for him to be beaten. He still kept him in custody, but it was more of a protective custody. In fact, in, in Roman culture, being in prison wasn't necessarily considered a punishment, but they'd keep you there uh, if they thought that they would need, need to uh, uh, do something with you later, potentially. But in Paul's case, he kept him there probably because he knew if he just released him, he was going to be dead the next day. Uh, and so he kept him in custody, but uh, it probably... It was without chains, no doubt, because that would have been illegal for him to chain a Roman citizen. So after all of those events, the next day, Lysias uh, exercised his right as a military governor of, of Jerusalem to order an emergency session of the Sanhedrin to investigate what charge, uh, what, what uh, law uh, Paul had broken, what charge would be lodged against him. Uh, because as you remember, when when he went and saved him, he asked him, he said, what has this man done? And everybody starts yelling something different and nobody could figure out what, he couldn't make heads or tails of what they were saying. He, he couldn't get a co coherent account of, of whatever the grievance was against Paul. So, so Claudius Lysias, he presumed that, well, then the, if I take him to the Sanhedrin, then they'll be able to shed some light on the situation. They'll, they'll be able to clear, clear this up for me. And uh, it was under his power. And understand, the Sanhedrin, uh, they were there, but they worked under Roman rule. They, could only, they only had limited power. They could only do certain things. But because he was the, the uh, Roman uh, commander for that region, for that city, uh, he had the power to tell them as the leaders, you need to convene, we're going to meet. So Paul is taken down before the Sanhedrin. And, and he was once a member of the Sanhedrin, in fact, at, at one point in time, he had cast his vote to stone Stephen, the, 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 great, the church's first martyr. And now Paul, or, yeah, Paul uh, as this former member of the Sanhedrin, now had to face the highest court of the Jews. So standing before the Sanhedrin, Paul showed no fear and no hesitation. He, he knew he was in the will of God, and that gave him confidence. And he had learned over the years in, in situations similar to this, he had learned to depend on the Holy Spirit. And so it says, fixing his eyes on the council. He, he met them eye to eye. He, he just face-to-face -face contact. He wasn't ashamed. He wasn't afraid. He looked them dead in the eyes and he started off with his defense, began to address them. And, and he started off by saying, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now, this was a bold claim that, that obviously irritated the high priest a great deal. Because the high priest was so incensed by Paul's claim that he, that he told those who stood beside uh, Paul to strike him across the mouth. So Paul barely gets started on his speech, barely gets started on his defense. He gets the first sentence out, and as he gets the first sentence out, the high priest says, Hit him in the mouth! And so they do. 
Now, that was really improper behavior, and that kind of improper behavior from a member of the Sanhedrin, it just stung Paul into an indignant retort. How many of you know that, you know, Jesus said that we're to turn the other cheek, right? Uh, How many of you know that in the moment sometimes uh, we have a little bit of a response before we remember what Jesus said? You know, it makes me feel good that Paul in this moment (laughs) got a little upset. And, and you know what Paul said? This is what he said after the, he got punched in the mouth at, about, because he, somebody in, the, in the, uh, the, the, the Sanhedrin had told him to do this. Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. It's a strong statement. He said, you sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck because it was illegal for the, for the, the Sanhedrin, anybody in the Sanhedrin to have that done. Now, that was a significant thing that Paul uh, called him a whitewashed wall. It actually, it's a little similar, reminds you of when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and he called them whitewashed tombs. Now, anybody ever, you know what whitewash is? It's basically a lot like painting. It's, It's white paint. You put on something to make it look nice and new and clean. And when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he was saying, listen, on the outside, you look great. But inside, you're just full of death. That's a whitewashed tomb. And, and Paul says to, these, to him, to the high priest Ananias, he said, you're a whitewashed wall. Now, Ananias had the title of high priest, but in, in spite of appearances, he was, he was just not worthy of the office because of what he was on the inside. Paul is basically saying, you're like a wall that is rotten on the inside that's about to collapse at any moment that somebody has whitewashed to make it look good. He gave the appearance of strength, but it was just a facade. And his weakness would eventually be seen. And and really, the the truth is, had Paul known the man uh, intimately, he he couldn't have chosen, he couldn't have spoken more more, uh, aptly. Because when, when, you, when you understand who Ananias the high priest was at this time, he was actually one of the most disgraceful uh, profaners of the sacred office of high priest. In fact, Josephus, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us how he seized for himself the, self the tithes that ought to have gone to the common priest. And he was a very greedy man. And by doing that, he became very wealthy and his great wealth made him a man to be reckoned with. How many of you have ever heard something about uh, the, the, uh, that the, the one who has the, the gold holds the power? You know, the, the people with the money tend to have power and influence. And, and, and this man, Ananias, who was the high priest, he, he made free use of violence and assassination to further his interests. And, and he had very pro-Roman policy and that made him the object of intense hostility by those that were loyal to the Jewish nation. In fact, when war broke out in A.D. 66, insurgents against the Roman Empire found Ananias hiding in an aqueduct. And they dragged him out of the aqueduct where he had been hiding, and they put him to death along with his brother Hezekiah. So this is the man sitting there saying this, and uh, rebuking him for breaking the law while he's breaking the law himself. Now those who had struck Paul rebuked him for insulting God's high priest. Now it's, it's, it's ironic to me that they seemed very, very insulted, very uh, angry 
at the fact that Paul had spoken this way to the high priest, but they do not appear to have been shocked at all by the fact that Ananias told them to punch him in the mouth. It's just amazing how we can, we can ignore our own sin, isn't it? See, Jewish law carefully safeguarded the rights of defendants and they were presumed innocent until proven guilty. And at this point in time, Paul has not even been charged with anything, let alone tried and found guilty. So, but, but, but when Paul heard that it was the high priest, you know, he apologized very quickly. In fact, he quoted a scripture from Exodus talking about how, uh, how uh, you should not raise your hand against the leader of, of the Jewish nation. And, and Paul apologized very quickly. He, he didn't know that the one who gave the command was the high priest. And that seems a little odd to us because you'd say, how could you not know? Well, realize this, Ananias received the office of high priest. It was given to him. He wasn't the true high priest of Israel because that was something that was passed on from generation to generation. But he had been appointed as high priest by, by Herod of Chalcis, which is a brother of Herod Agrippa II. And he had been appointed to that office in A.D. 47. Now, Paul had been in Jerusalem since then only a very few times, and he had only been there for very short periods of time. So when he had been a Pharisee in Jerusalem, it would have been a different high priest. So this is a different man. He doesn't know him. It's, it, it's not strange that he had not seen him before. And on top of that, it's very possible and maybe even likely that since the Roman commander had, had called the Sanhedrin uh, together uh, on this occasion, it's very likely that the high priest was, was just sitting there uh, among the other members of the court and he was not the one presiding. And, and because of that, he probably, because of the impromptu nature of this meeting, probably didn't have his high priestly garb on or anything like that. Uh, and, and though Paul didn't know who the high priest was, he did know the scripture. And the scripture told him to show a respect to those in authority. And in response, when he found out, this was very interesting to me because, I mean, this is a man who, who is supposed to uphold the law of God, who has broken the law by having him punched in the mouth. And yet Paul's response is a response of, of, of amazing humility because he showed this genuine humility of his spirit by, by apologizing and saying, I'm sorry, I did not know that was the high priest. So then on the heels of that, Paul realized very quickly, I'm going to have to change my tactic. You know, when he started that, that first sentence, it sounds like he had pretty much uh, spent the night thinking about what he was going to say. And he started off his, his speech and he had this sentence out and he got the first sentence out and got punched in the mouth. So now he realizes, okay, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. I got to go to plan B because uh, my speech is not going to work. He, he perceived by, uh, by, by now that there is no hope of a rational discussion of his ministry. How many of you ever had a, a gotten into conversation with somebody that was so passionate and had already made up their mind on something that it didn't matter what you said to them, you realized very quickly there was no hope of having a rational discussion whatsoever. Has that ever happened? If it hasn't, then, you know, then maybe you're the irrational one. I don't know. No, I'm just, I wouldn't say that. But So now Paul, he, he changes his tactics. You remember when he spoke to the tribune, he spoke to him as a Roman citizen. 
Now he's talking to these Jewish leaders. So what does he do now? Now he addresses the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee. And so he's relating at different levels. And Paul recognized that the Sanhedrin consisted of a Sadducean majority, but also had a very strong Pharisaic minority. So there were Sadducees and Pharisees, more Sadducees than Pharisees, but there was still a very strong minority of the Pharisees. And now Paul, as I said, he had, a, he had a background as a Pharisee. He had been a Pharisee before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the, the Pharisees believed the, the hope of, of the resurrection was fundamental to the hope of Israel and it was necessary to the full, full realization of God's promise. It was one of their core beliefs, the belief in the resurrection uh, by God of those who follow him. The Sadducees, on the other hand, rejected the idea of any resurrection realizing as he, that where he was in the situation, realizing that he's never going to get much of a hearing out of this bunch. He's already, he said one sentence and got punched in the mouth. So he realizes, I'm not going to get a fair hearing here. And, and, and I mean, if they're not willing to even let me finish my first sentence without resorting to judicial violence, this is not going to go well. So Paul uh, he decides to release his biggest cat into a room of self-important pigeons. And so it was an opportunity to witness to the truth of the resurrection in general, but also to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus in particular. So he basically stands up and shouts, Resurrection! That's what this is all about, he says. This is, that, that is the great hope for which we Pharisees have always stood up. The issue before us is the resurrection of the dead. Well, that split this assembly into two camps. The Pharisees, which, which is ironic because, you know, they, they hated Paul as much as anybody. But the Pharisees were immediately inclined to concede that a man who was so sound on the central Pharisaic doctrine that he couldn't be so bad at heart after all. And see, they, they couldn't really attack him when he's talking about the resurrection because they knew the Sadducees were already opposed to their doctrine of resurrection. So, so now they're, they're kind of backed into a corner where they're suddenly, instead of attacking Paul, they're defending Paul. Now, now after Paul brings up a resurrection, now the Sadducees, they're more enraged than ever because they denied the doctrine of bodily, bodily resurrection and they rejected the belief in a spirit world of angels and demons. And some of the Pharisaic scholars present, they begin to say, oh, he's done no wrong. This is so funny to me. They just turn on a dime because now it's, it's more about their self-interest and about their belief and, and, and standing up for that. And so they begin to say, oh, he's really done nothing wrong. If, and, and you know what? If he, spoke, uh, if he spoke of receiving divine instruction and visions, it, they said it, maybe it was some sort of spirit, some sort of angel that communicated with them because they believed in those things. In fact, in fact they, uh, they believed in the resurrection of the dead, but that if you believe in the resurrection of the dead and somebody passes away, that requires you to believe that somewhere... That, that uh, God is maintaining the life of that person, their spirit, uh, whatever it might be. And so they believed, that's what they would call, they believed, some would say angels, some would say it was the spirit of the person that would, would be there. And so they say, hey, if he, maybe he did hear from an angel. Maybe he did have a spirit communicate with him. And of course, the Sadducees repudiated the very possibility 
that, that, that such communication could be made because they said there are no such things as spirits and, and angels and demons. And so as they contended with one another, the, the discord grew and the result was a great uproar, uproar as they clamored against each other and, and things grew, it always happens with Paul, things grew so violent that the Roman commander suddenly became afraid that Paul might be torn apart. It's almost like you get this picture that they're jumping down on the floor where Paul was and the Pharisees are saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with him and they're pulling him on their side and the Sadducees, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're going to put him on trial and Paul's about to be torn apart in there. So he orders the, the soldiers to go down and, and pull him from the crowd and take him back to the fortress of Antonia. The, so now the tribunes attempt to arrange a, an inquiry by the Sanhedrin proved unproductive and, and nearly disastrous. This has, been a, this has been a hard day for Paul already. It's been a hard two days. But then Paul's, I mean, think about it, his, his worst apprehensions of what might happen to him at Jerusalem look like it might come true. All the fear, all the thoughts of, of what may happen to him. And not only that, maybe even worse for Paul because he had such a burning desire to go to Rome and preach. It looked as if his plans for carrying the gospel to, to Rome and, and going there looked like those plans were in jeopardy. I might not ever get out of here. I'm not going to make it to Rome. And, and he, he, he probably was feeling at least some level of dejection, maybe some despondence. He was probably wondering, I mean, there's some fear that comes in, because how many of you know Paul was human? Anybody here a human? Do you ever feel despair? you ever, ever feel down? you ever feel discouraged? you ever, ever feel afraid? Well, of course you do. You're human. And Paul's human. And, and so in that moment, when he's fighting with this, the Lord appeared to him and, 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 and said to him, listen, I'm going to read to what he said. He said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. Actually, I want to read the whole verse, not just what he said. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. I love that phrase. I'll come back to it in a minute. And said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also, also testify in Rome. That's a powerful statement there. First of all, I love that it says the Lord stood near Paul. I mean, think about this. How lonely must Paul be feeling? How isolated must he be? And yet the Lord wasn't far off in the distance watching with some amount of limited interest. The Lord wasn't just, you know, sitting on his throne looking down saying, oh, well, there's Paul. I can see him down there. It says that the Lord stood near him. The Lord was near Paul. And the Lord spoke to Paul and said, take courage. Now, why would he say take courage if Paul hadn't begun to lose his courage? You see, Jesus doesn't just appear and say things like this just on a whim. He knew that Paul needed to hear this. And he knew that Paul needed to hear this right now. And he said, Paul, don't lose your courage. Don't get discouraged. He said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And Jesus confirmed to Paul he said, listen, I know your heart is to go to Rome, but I want you to know you're going to live through this ordeal and you are going to Rome. I'm going to get you to Rome. Uh, you're going to, you have to go. That's part of my plan for you. Now, here's the thing. He was not promised a comfortable ride. 
So you, you know, how many of us, you know, we like a comfortable ride, don't we? And, and the Lord said that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And we like that, but we'd like to add on there, he'll be faithful to complete it comfortably. Because we all want to make it to heaven. We all want the final destination. We all want to stand before him and receive his reward. We all want to stand there and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But a lot of us, especially in the West, we want, we want to get there comfortably. You know what? He didn't promise that the road would be comfortable. He didn't promise that the road would be easy. But he promised that we'd get there. Well, this assurance to Paul, it meant so much to him. Think about it. We know a lot of the stuff that's coming because we've read the book of Acts. But think about all the things that Paul goes through from, from here on out. We're going to be looking in the coming weeks about shipwrecks and, and snake bites and all kinds of things and, and, and different things that he walked through and different ordeals that he, he dealt with. How much would this vision, how, much, how important was this, would this vision be for him in the coming days as he goes through all of these things, as he walks through it? Because, listen, he's on that ship, and the ship is going to sink. The ship is going down, and yet he knows, because the Lord spoke to him personally, he says, I know I'm going to make it to Rome. In the middle of this storm, in the middle of the shipwreck, I don't have to be afraid. It was a sustaining, powerful thing for him. And you know, there's an important lesson we can learn from Paul's experience. And that is that the Lord is near to us. He's near to us and he gives us an assurance that will keep us going during hard times. And he will speak to us in the moment where we, when we need to hear him. And he will say exactly what we need to hear in the moment when we need to hear it. He will give us what we need when we need it to see us through. He, he told Paul on another occasion, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, he's saying, and that was in the context of Paul praying, Lord, would you take away this thorn in the flesh? We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Uh, well, maybe we'll talk about that another time a little bit more. But, but, but three times he had asked, said, Lord, take this thorn away. Take it away. Take it away. And, and the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, he said, he said, no, I'm not going to take the thorn away. But my grace is going to be at work in your life. And it's, and it's going to help you to deal with this. It's going to help you overcome this. It's not going to stop you. And it was this assurance from the Lord that kept Paul going through hard times. And it's the assurance that he will never leave us nor forsake us that keeps us going. In the moments when we feel the most alone, it's the knowledge that Jesus stands near us that gives us the courage to keep moving. And because of that, because we know that, we can be faithful. We talked about it a week or two ago, what does faithful mean? It means full of faith. Faithful. Full of faith. If you're full of faith, then you keep moving. If you're full of faith, you keep, you keep reaching. If you're full of faith, you keep going toward what God has called you to. And as you keep moving in the process of that, you are known as faithful. It's your faith 
that keeps us moving. It's the faith of, in knowing that he is here, that he is near us, that he's, he's going to take care of us, that he's going to see us through. It may not be comfortable, but he'll get us there. It's that faith that carries us through. So what a powerful night that was. But the next morning, as bad as it's been, it gets even worse. Because the next morning, a, a band of at least 40 men covenanted together and they swore a solemn oath. Now, now we like to, you know, we in our nation, you know, our culture, we say, I, I, I swear it. But we don't, we don't understand, we don't take it seriously. A vow in those days in their culture really, really meant something. And so they swore a solemn oath. And they made a vow and they said, we will not eat again until we have killed Paul. Now, that's a pretty serious vow. And uh, I don't think a vow like that would go over too well in our church. <laughs> because we're not, we'll give up other things, but we're not giving up our food. <laughs> and so they made this vow. This group of men made this vow. And then they went to the chief priests and the leaders of the Sanhedrin. And the conspirators asked the leaders, they said, okay, we've got a plan, but we need you to play a part in this. There's a part that you play. If you'll do your part, we'll do our part, and we're going to be rid of this problem named Paul. So they said to them, they said, listen, we need you to make an official request to the Roman commander and ask him to send Paul, to bring Paul down to you here in the Sanhedrin, and, and just tell him that you intend to determine more precisely all the facts, that you want to get more information. And then they said, here's what we'll do. We will ambush the soldiers who are escorting Paul, and we will kill him before he ever reaches the council, council chambers. We're going to take care of him. We'll set the trap. All you've got to do is ask for them to bring him. And the blood won't be on your hands. You're not doing it. Nobody can blame you because it's going to be an ambush before they ever get to the Sanhedrin. I mean, this, this whole plan speaks of the fanatical devotion and the, tells you the level of their hatred for Paul because surely they're going to suffer heavy loss in carrying out this plan. Some of them are going to die when they're attacking Roman soldiers. There's no doubt. Well, Paul's sister's son, his nephew, happened to come on the scene just at, at this time and somehow he heard, he heard about this plot. This is really one of the few glimpses into Paul's family life. We don't know a lot about his family. Some commentators say that he would have been disowned for following Jesus. That's possible. Uh, however, there's also a possibility that, that somehow through this situation and the reconnecting with the family that he got re, that he, he, some of the Family relationships were restored in the process because from here on out, uh, uh, Paul doesn't seem to have an issue with, with money. When he needed money, when he needed money, he had the money there. And so it's very possible that he got reconnected with the family during this time period. But, and, and Paul's nephew, it's a mystery. It's a mystery who he was. We don't know his name. All we know is his relationship to Paul. We don't know how he knew about this plot. We don't know if he was just in a room next to it and he overheard it or if somebody started sharing, you know, you know, it's like people like to brag about what they're going to do. Maybe somebody was out bragging saying, hey, me and 39 other guys, we, we got this oath. Maybe somebody said, hey, you want a donut? And the guy said, no, nope, no, nope, can't eat that. 
Not till I kill Paul. Me and 40 other guys were going to do this. I don't know how it happened, but somehow he heard this. And so Paul's nephew pays Paul a visit. Now Paul, as a Roman citizen, remember he was being held in custody, but it was more protective custody. So he was kept in what would be considered more honorable custody. So he was allowed to receive visitors uh, as, a, as a Roman citizen in honorable custody. That meant that centurions uh, promptly carried out his commissions. If he asked for something, centurions would, would take care of it. So when his nephew came and reported the plot to Paul, first of all, he had easy access to Paul. But Paul, immediately upon hearing this, he calls the centurion over. And he says, take this young man to the, to the Roman commander. Take this, this young man to, to, Lysias, to, to, excuse me, to Claudius Lysias. And so the, the commander received Paul's nephew kindly and listened to what he had to sell, tell him. And uh, he took him by the hand and pulled him off to the side so they'd have some privacy and listened very carefully to this young man. And he, and he took him seriously. And, and, and as soon as he heard this, he made up his mind about what had to be done. And so he dismissed the young man with a warning. He said, don't tell anybody that you've given me this information. Keep it to yourself. Probably even emphasizing to him, listen, this is for your good. You don't want anybody to know that you came and told me this. But the commander knew that he, that he would be held accountable for a Roman citizen in his custody. And if Paul was assassinated by these men, he knew that he, the commander who was in charge of Paul, would be executed. I would say that's a pretty good uh, motivation. And so Paul's life plainly was not safe in Jerusalem. His solution was that Paul must be sent at once uh, under a strong guard to Caesarea, which was the capital of, of the province. He would be safer there, and he would be not only maybe more important to, to Lysias, he would then be the responsibility of the, of the procurator of Judea himself. Basically, he said, listen, not only is he safer there, but he's not my problem anymore. So he assembled 200 foot soldiers and 200 spearmen, along with 70 cavalry, cavalry not cavalry, cavalry. And in, in put them together, this force of 470 soldiers to escort Paul to safety. I think he's taking this pretty seriously. And then horses were provided for Paul to ride so that he might be taken safely to Felix, who was the Roman, Roman governor of the province at the time. And then as in preparation, then the commander wrote a letter to explain to the governor why he was sending Paul up there. Because if he just showed up and said, here's this prisoner, the Roman governor is going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. Get out of here. And in the letter, the commander, first of all, that's where he get his name. He named himself Claudius Lysias. And then he explained how, and listen to this. How many of you know, you know that we have this human tendency that when we tell a story, we like to paint ourselves in the best light possible? And so, you know, this is what he did. He explained how he had rescued Paul from the Jews who had about been about to kill him. Now, that part is absolutely true. He definitely rescued Paul from, uh, from the Jews who were about to kill him. But he, he kind of painted himself in a better light than what was actually the case. Because in the letter, he implies he, he, that, that he rescued him 
uh, because he had learned that Paul was a Roman citizen. Now, we know that's not at all what happened. He had no idea that Paul was a Roman citizen. In fact, he was about to have Paul flogged until he found out he was a Roman citizen. And he didn't want that in the, in the record at all. So he left that part out completely. He said, yeah, I learned that he was a Roman citizen. So I went down and rescued him from these, these crazy Jews. And he explained that the accusations were based on questions of Jewish law and that he had found nothing worthy of death or, or, uh, or even being chained as a prisoner. Now, I want to go back for a second because... The whole plan now has been thwarted. These assassins, these 40 assassins, were, they were planning on, on killing him on the way to the Sanhedrin. Well, now he's not going to come and, and testify before the Sanhedrin. And so they don't have the opportunity. There's no way they can attack this band of 470 soldiers. They're not going to stand a chance there. So they got a problem, don't they? Because they had made a vow that they would not eat until Paul had been killed. And we're really not told what, what happened to them, what they did with that whole situation. Obviously, they, you know, I don't think that any of them actually starved to death. They, they had to eat and drink you know, eventually. And probably what happened is they found some way to offer a sacrifice or some offering to atone for their failure to keep the vow. In fact, the Jewish Mishnah, which is which is a collection of not only the, the Old Testament, but also Jewish oral teaching and, uh, and written teaching uh, about the, the Scripture. That's the first, and includes the first part of the Talmud. And then the Talmud is the modern day, it's the collection of not just the Scriptures, but all the teachings of the different, different rabbis. And both of those uh, indicate that there, there's, they provide grounds for the absolution of vows and make provisions for how to deal with that. So they probably did something like that. Well, anyway, that night, the soldiers, uh, Paul, Paul heads out of town with the soldiers. By the way, uh, it, it was probably 9, 9.30 at night when they took off. And they did this forced march, march all night long because they're going to a city called Antipatris, which is about 35 miles from Jerusalem. That's where they're, they're, they're spending the night there. And, uh, and, they, and the soldiers, they escort Paul all the way up there. And they went to Antipatris and stayed there overnight because this was a Roman colony. There was a military station there, and it was about halfway to Caesarea. Now, on the way from Jerusalem to Antipatris, the country was, was hill country. It was dangerous, a lot of places to hide, a lot of places where you could set up an ambush uh, and it was inhabited by Jews. And so that was a very dangerous part of the journey. Uh, uh, but after that, after that, that city, the country was open and flat. Does that sound familiar to anybody that lives here in the, in the Mid-South? Low and flat. I mean, we moved from South Carolina, a place called the Low Country, which was flat as can be. The only hills were the bridges over the rivers. And I moved to Arkansas, and I thought, oh, finally, I'm going to see some hills. And I moved here. And it's flat, and the only hills are the bridges over the, over the river, so nothing really changed. And so anyway, because the country after that, between Antipatris and Caesarea was so flat, there was no place to set up an ambush, so it was a, a lot less dangerous. And, and also it was largely inhabited by Gentiles. There weren't very many Jews there. So, so once they made it to there and they spent the night, and since they were out of the hill country and they were somewhat safer, in the morning, then all the foot soldiers 
returned to the fortress of Antonia. And then the cavalrymen, all, they conducted Paul the rest of the way to Caesarea, and they delivered the letter and brought Paul before the governor. And then after reading the letter, Felix ordered that Paul be kept in Herod's palace, uh, the palace built by Herod the Great, where the governor now, uh, Felix himself, where he was now living and kept his soldiers. So now he's in Caesarea. Not of his own choosing, but this is where he is. And after five days, so, he's, so far it's been about three or four days since he was arrested. After five days, the high priest, Ananias, with some of the members of the Sanhedrin, arrived with a man named Tertullus. And he was an orator, a lawyer. Um, and, and Paul was called in. And Tertullus was given the opportunity to present his accusation against him before Felix, the governor. Now, secular history, and I want to interject this, tells us that Felix was not a good man. He was actually a violent, unfair man. Uh, interesting thing is, he had begun his life as a slave. His brother, Pallas, was a, was a close friend, a favorite of, of the Emperor Nero, and it was through the influence of Pallas, his brother, that Felix had first risen to become, first of all, to become a freedman, so he's no longer a slave, and then to become a governor. And in fact, interesting thing, he was the first uh, slave in history ever to become a governor of a Roman province. It's this man, Felix. But the problem was, like Tacitus, a uh, Roman historian said, uh, historian said of him, he said that Felix exercised the prerogatives of a king with the spirit of a slave. Not a good man. He was completely unscrupulous. He was capable of hiring thugs to murder even his closest supporters if he didn't like that them or something that they did. Jo Josephus, the Jewish historian, records the, that the Jews hated him. And this is the man before whom Paul was about to stand trial. Almost like going out of the frying pan into the fire to me. So Tertullus, this lawyer, begins his accusation against Paul. And, and he, you know, some things never change. He started off with these crooked lawyer tactic, tactics. He, he resorted, started off with flattery to gain the favor of Felix. He said this, he said, we have enjoyed... Now, remember what I just said about this man. He was a, a, a brutal, vicious man. He said, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. There is absolutely no sincerity in this statement. In addition, there is absolutely no integrity in this statement. He didn't care what he said. He was just trying to get his favor by flattery. Now, the thing was, Felix, Felix was not a dumb man. He, he knew how the Jews felt about him. And there's no doubt he saw right through this thinly veiled attempt at flattery. Then Tertullus goes on and brings three charges against Paul. First of all, he belittled Paul. He wouldn't even say his name. He says, this man. Wouldn't even say his name. And then he falsely accused him of being a troublemaker and accused him of stirring up riots among the Jews who are all over the world, that is, all over the Roman Empire. Now, see, there's a, the, the best lies are the ones that have a grain of truth in them. 
Because there had been riots all over the Roman Empire where, where Paul went. Isn't that true? But the lie was, Paul didn't stir those up. It wasn't Paul that started any of them. It was actually the Jews in those, in those cities that had stirred up the trouble and the riots. Then the second charge, he implicated all the Christians by, by saying basically that Paul was a ringleader in what he called the sect of the Nazarenes. Those are, in other words, those who were followers of, the, of Jesus of Nazareth. And then finally, after this general accusation, Tertullus gives the, a, a specific charge that Paul had tried to desecrate the temple, but he says, but we caught him in the act, stopping him just before he could do it. Now this, of course, was all false. This is all false. First of all, none of those people of the Sanhedrin were even at the temple. They didn't catch anybody. They didn't catch anything. By the way, it's also interesting that Tertullus... He didn't say how they had actually captured Paul, how they had seized Paul in the first place. That it was a mob bent on beating him to death without the benefits of a trial. He left that part out. Instead, Tertullus pretended, this is what he said, he tried to make the claim, he pretended that Paul was just was being judged properly by their law. He said, listen, we, were just, we had arrested him, we were putting him on trial, we were doing everything the right way, and then all of a sudden the Roman commander Lysias intervened with much force, he says, and commanded his accusers to appear before the governor. It's all, all just made up. The Jews, then when they heard all this, they all jump in, pressing charges against him, saying again and again and again that all these things are true. Yeah, that's right, that's true. What he said is exactly right, that's true. Well, eventually, it's Paul's turn. When the governor nodded to Paul, indicated, indicating that he should speak, Paul addressed him courteously, stated the facts, but without any of the flattery of Tertullus. And Paul presented the, the facts that, that the governor himself, first of all, that the governor could easily verify for himself. All he had to do was, was talk to, to Claudius Lysias. He could talk with many people and find out the facts for themselves to verify if what Paul was saying was true. And, and, and first of all, Paul had only been in Jerusalem uh, a week before he was seized by this mob. And during that whole week, Paul says, he, his defense is, it's very brilliant, he says, he says during that entire time, uh, nobody ha ha could accuse me. They had not found me arguing. You didn't even find me preaching to anybody. He said, during that whole week, he said, I did not stir up a crowd in the temple. There was no problem in the synagogue. There was no issue anywhere else in the city. He said, you can check it out and find out if that's true. That whole week I was there, none of those charges that they're talking about existed. There's no way they can prove their accusations. Then he proceeded with a public declaration of his faith. And as a follower of the way, he, he, he maintained that he continued to serve the God of his fathers. He's saying, listen, I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm not against the, 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 the ceremonies of the temple. In fact, he says, that's what I was doing. I was going through a ritual uh, ceremony of cleansing. I was doing a very Jewish thing when this all happened. And I have not turned my, my back on the God of Israel. In fact, I know him better than I've ever known him before. He also maintained that he was faithful to his Jewish heritage. 
And then after that, Paul returns to the facts of his case. After an absence of several years, he had come back to Jerusalem, he said, with gifts for the poor and offerings to God. He says, listen, if, I, if there's a crime I've made, it's that I've come to do good for poor people and to make an offering to God. And he says, it was while I was presenting these offerings that they found me in the temple, not defiling it, but ritually purified, going through the processes, the proper things to be done at the temple with no crowd around me and no disturbance whatsoever. But he said there were certain Jews from Asia who had falsely accused him. We know they were from Ephesus. Now, the interesting thing was they were the real accusers. Paul makes the point, he says, listen, they're the ones that, that accused me of these things. Where are they? He said, they're the real accusers. They're the ones that make the, made the accusation, so it's their duty to be the ones to come before you, Felix. They should be here telling you about things and make their accusation. If they have any charge against me, they should be here. Then he made it clear that none of these priests, none of these elders that were present there were witnesses of anything that happened in the temple. The only thing that, that there was only one thing that they had witnessed, they were present when he had stood before the Sanhedrin and cried out that it was with respect to the resurrection of the dead that he was called into question. And he said, that I'll admit to, I definitely stood before the Sanhedrin and said that. But that was no crime. Now, upon hearing this, Felix was faced with a severe dilemma. Because Felix quickly perceived that Paul had done nothing wrong. Certainly nothing worthy of Roman punishment. But, if, but he knew that if he just summarily acquitted Paul and set him free, then, then first of all, these Jewish leaders, they, was always, they were always, the, the Jewish uh, nation was always difficult for Rome to, to deal with because they were always constantly in, in conflict with the Roman authorities and and he knew that if he just acquitted Paul and said, ah, he's not guilty and set him free, that these Jewish leaders would likely stir up a riot and possibly murder Paul in the process. And now he's going to have that to deal with and he'd be in trouble for letting Paul die that way. So Felix did what the best politicians do. He said, I tell you what, uh, let's just not make a decision. Let's just kick the can down the road. We'll deal with this later. And he said that, he said, you know what, when the commander, uh, Lycia, comes uh, down here, when he comes back, uh, he'll be able to fill me in on the, all the details that concern this. So we'll just wait until I can get him here, and then we'll, we'll hear his side of the story. Interesting thing is, there's no evidence whatsoever that he ever sent for Lysias. It was just a way to say, I don't want to deal with this. I just, don't want to, I just don't want to mess with this. Felix then commanded the centurion to guard and protect Paul, and he, he was also to allow Paul a considerable amount of, amount of freedom, uh, not forbidding his friends from visiting him, from bringing him food and giving him whatever else he needed. Then after some days, Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, which if I had a name like Drusilla, I would change my name, but, uh, but that's just me. But Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, came and they, they summoned Paul 
and listen to him tell of the gospel of Jesus. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Well, Paul not only presented the facts of the gospel and theology of the gospel, but, but we're told that he went, into, went on to discuss practical matters of righteousness and self-control. And then the one I think that really got to, to Felix, the judgment to come. See, we forget the gospel is not just about love, but it's about the fact that he loved us enough to save us from the judgment to come. Without the judgment to come, there'd be nothing to be saved from. And so he presents the whole gospel to Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And when he does this, we're told that Felix became terrified. And he told Paul, hey, just you need to leave now. Get out of here for a while. You know what it was? He felt convicted of his sin. But he wasn't ready to leave, leave his sinful life. And he said, I will call you back at a convenient time. Oh, how many times people have missed out on what God's trying to do with their life because they say, oh, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. You know, the, the thing about that is, I've told people this many, many times. You don't get to come to God on your terms. You don't get to say, well, you know, I know you're calling me now as a young man, but when I'm old, I'll come to you, I'll come home to you. You don't get to dictate the terms. The, Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except the Spirit draw him. You only, you're only have that opportunity when the Spirit is pulling you, when the Spirit is calling you, when the Spirit is wooing you. You don't get to say, Lord, I'll come when I want to come. You, you are responsible. The only thing we can do is respond to the call that He gives to us right now. And Felix was missing out on what God was trying to do in his life. Felix, the Holy Spirit was using Paul in that moment to present the gospel. And, and he was giving Felix and his wife, Drusilla, an opportunity to, to become Christians, to become followers of Jesus, to be saved from the judgment that was yet to come. And here was Felix using procrastination as an excuse for his unwillingness to repent. Now, at the same time with that, Felix was a greedy man. And he hoped that Paul would bring him a great deal of money. He knew Paul had a lot of friends and he probably expected them to present a bribe for his release. That was the way things often happen, especially with a corrupt leader like Felix. They, it would be very common for somebody to say, okay, I know how to get him out. You just got to, you know, give him the, what we call a Pentecostal handshake, you know, where you shake somebody's hand with a $50 bill in there, you know, uh, which, you know, I'm always open to those. No, I'm just teasing. Well, I'm not teasing. I am open to those. But, um, and so he was waiting for a bribe. And we're told, therefore, he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Now, that's very interesting because it, to me, it begs the question, why did Felix persist in calling in Paul for private conversations with him and with his Jewish wife, Drusilla, when this made him so uncomfortable, when it created this terror in his heart about what was to come? And, and I know it's, it's true that Felix hoped for a bribe, but I think there's a little more to it there because there, there must have been something in Paul's message that both attracted and repelled this couple. 
You know, many times that's the truth about the gospel. The gospel both attracts and repels people who are, who are falling under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because there's something about it that's drawing us and yet our, our own human uh, uh, flesh, uh, the, the, the sinful man inside of us at the same time rejects that and doesn't want anything to do with that. And so there's this push and pull that goes on. This is every time somebody is being convicted by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is drawing them, this is the kind of thing that's going on. It's, it's oh yes, I want that, but I don't want it, but I do want it, but I don't want it. It's this constant push and pull. And so too weak to do what is right, Felix keeps Paul in prison for two years. Well, that must have been a long time, longing to get to Rome. Knows that he's going to get there. Jesus has told him, you're going to get there. But waiting and saying, when, Lord? You ever been there? Or you say, I know God's going to do something. I believe it. He's spoken to me. I, I'm believing him for it. And, and it just doesn't come. It doesn't come. And it doesn't come. And you find yourself saying, when, Lord? Well, Felix keeps Paul under house arrest for two years, which is actually until the end of his rule. See, Felix's downfall came two years later, two years after this event, because uh, of the way he mishandled an outbreak of riots between the Jews and Gentiles of Caesarea. What he did was he loosed some Syrian soldiers on the Jewish community in a rampage of violence and plunder. And then the Jewish community leaders reported Felix's actions to Rome. And then Felix was removed from office by Rome would likely have been executed, uh, but the only way his life was spared was because of his brother's ties with Nero, because that's how he became governor in the first place, because his brother Pallas was close friends with Nero. So eventually, two years later, Felix is succeeded by a man named Portius Festus. He was in office for two years, from A.D. 59 to A.D. 61, when he died. But you know what? The arrival of a new and inexperienced governor who, who he didn't know what the, what the climate was like there in Jerusalem and that in Judea. Uh, that, was, that was really not a good thing for Paul because, uh, I mean, this new guy coming in, he's not going to understand the nature of these Jewish leaders. He's not going to know the history of the case. So it's, it's a perilous time. For Paul, and we're, we're going to get to uh, next week, we're going to start looking at his, uh, Paul's uh, trial before Festus, and he meets with King Agrippa, and we're going to see some powerful things there. But to close tonight, what I want to, I want to close with looking at Felix and Drusilla and their response to the gospel. Because, you know, you read this, and I want you to begin to put two and two together. Felix and his wife met privately with Paul on many, many occasions. And he told them the gospel many, many times. And yet they never fully believed the message of the gospel. I want you to think on the other side of that. That means that Paul spent two years of his life sharing the gospel with the same two people 
pouring the gospel into them as much as he had the opportunity, and he never saw any fruit for his labors. See, God calls us to be faithful in sharing the good news with people around us. And it makes no difference whether they choose to believe or choose to reject. See, the gospel is like the seed sown by the sower. You remember the parable Jesus used. There's the sower seed, the seed. Some fell on stony ground, some fell on thorny ground, some fell on good ground, you know, all these, uh, all these different places. Some will receive for, for, for different reasons, but, you know, there are going to be others that will, where the seed will fall on, on, on I mean, the, some will fall on good soil and they'll receive it and, and they'll be saved, but some is going to fall on bad soil and, and they'll never receive it. And, and, but it is, you know what, it doesn't excuse us as the sower of the seed from planting the seed. Here's what I want to say, and we'll close with this. It is not up to us to choose which soil we sow our seed into. It's not up to us into which soil we sow our seed. You know, um, the Lord has called us here to Marion. He moved us from South Carolina. And, uh, you know, I wasn't looking to move away from the beach. You know what I'm talking about? But the Lord said, I've got a different soil. I want you to plant it. And so we go wherever he puts us. And, and the, we have to realize that, every, first of all, every one of us has been called by God. Every one of us is a sower of seeds. Every one of us is called to share the gospel of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And the second thing is, and this is what we learned a few weeks ago in Acts 17, and that, that God has placed you strategically where you are during this time period because he wants you to be the person to reach the people that are around you. He's, he's placed you where you are strategically to sow the seed of the gospel. Now, what we, we can get caught up in saying, well... I just wish I could go someplace else and sow my seed there. I, I sure would like to have this other, you know, be able to go over there and, and, and reach those people. Or I sure would like to live in that city because they sure are hungry for Jesus. Or I would like to do this or I would like to do, do that. But listen, what we've got to understand is we're living where God has put us. He's planted us here strategically for such a time as this. And he's saying this where you are, where you work, where you go to school, where you live, this is the soil I've given you. Now sow your seed. And not to say, well, I, I'd like to sow it across town. No, sow the seed in the soil that God has given you. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, that's what I want.